Welcome to The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking to uh, Dame Frances Ashcroft. She is actually a British professor, but she's also the uh, Royal Society GlaxoSmithKline Research Professor at the University Laboratory of Physiology at the University of Oxford. And she's a fellow at Trinity College, Oxford, and is a director for the Oxford Center for Gene Function. So she's, she's got quite a few hats to wear. And thank you so much, you know, Professor Ashcroft, for joining us. My pleasure. I wanted to just start off by uh, talking about your interest. What is your scientific interest and how are you pursuing it at Oxford? Well, I suppose I'm interested in two things. One thing I'm interested in is ion channels. And the other thing I'm interested in is uh, the mechanism by which glucose stimulates insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells and what goes wrong with that process in diabetes. And both of those interests combined together in really looking at the role of ion channels in insulin secretion. And, you know, and what's going on, I guess what's going on at Oxford in this sort of field, is there a lot of work uh, right now happening or is, uh, is it your lab that's primarily doing this work? Or, uh, what's well, the there's, quite, there's quite a lot of diabetes research going on at Oxford, mostly not in the physiology part, department, but in the, the Oxford Department of Diabetes and the OCDEM. Okay, that's perfect. <laughs> and the Oxford Centre for Diabetes, Endocrinology and Metabolism. Yes, that's what it stands for. So, for example, there's my long-term colleague there, Patrick Rosman, who is looking at ion channels as well and working on uh, alpha and delta cells as well as the pancreatic beta cells and also um, a few other people working in different areas. But in terms of the ion channel stuff, Patrick is the main one. Okay. And, and we've w- been collaborating for over 35 years now. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful to have that strong of a collaboration. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you have found through the course of your career about ion channels, beta cells. I think the most important thing I discovered was that the mechanism by which glucose stimulates insulin secretion is by closing an ion channel known as the ATP-sensitive potassium channel. And basically what happens is, we now know from work of many people, including myself, that when the blood glucose concentration goes up, glucose is metabolized by the beta cell, and that is broken down to ATP, and ATP inhibits this particular potassium channel. And the consequence is that the channel closes, which induces depolarization of the membrane and stimulation of electrical activity and thereby calcium influx and insulin secretion. So I suppose when I first came to Oxford, it was known from the work of people like Steve Ashcroft and Philip Randall that metabolism of glucose was essential for insulin secretion. And almost exactly at the same time as I found that glucose closed this potassium channel, or rather glucose metabolism closed this potassium channel, Dan Cook and Nick Hales um, showed that there was a potassium channel in, in beta cells that was inhibited by ATP. And, and then Patrick came along and showed that the two were the same thing. So the really important thing about this channel is it really provides a sort of missing link between beta cell metabolism and the stimulation of electrical activity and calcium entry and insulin secretion. It's a huge uh, piece of the puzzle. It's a piece of the puzzle 
And I think one of the things that's really interesting about the beta cell is that the resting membrane potential is determined almost entirely by this particular potassium channel. Of course, in order for the cell to depolarize when the KATP channel closes, there has to be an inward current. Yeah. But we've never really discovered what it is. Wow. It may be lots of different channels or, or transporters working together, or it may be one that we're not quite sure of. Um, but the KATP channel we know is important for a variety of reasons. And that is one of the things it is, is it's the target for the anti-diabetic sulfonylurea drugs, which are used to treat type two diabetes. They are closed by, uh, they close these KATP channels and that's how they stimulate insulin secretion. And the other thing is sort of 20 years after when we first found that the KATP channel was closed by glucose, it became immediately evident that if the channel didn't close in response to glucose, then insulin would not be released and the yeah. patient would have diabetes. So I was terribly excited about this because I thought that maybe this was the cause of diabetes or type 2 diabetes. And I set out to see if, if this was the case. But it took an awful long time because, first of all, we had to clone the channel and mm. identify yeah. what its composition was. And that turned out to be extremely difficult because it was made of two different proteins. And that was found, you know, it was the Bryans in the States who, who identified the sulfonylurea receptor, which is the regulatory subunit, and myself and Susumi Sena, who identified the pore forming subunit. And mm. then, of course, we needed to understand which where where the binding sites for atp were and that was also complicated and then we needed to go from um, knowing what the genes were to identifying mutations in patients that caused diabetes and that turned out to be really difficult because we first we looked in patients with type 2 diabetes and we you know there were not obvious mutations mm -hmm. there were there was a common um a, a common polymorphism associated with type 2 diabetes, but it wasn't really us who showed it was significant because you need thousands of patients to show this. We only yeah. And so it was about 10 years later when Andrew Hattersley set up, um, he, he made a collection of DNA from patients who were born with diabetes. And he then screened them for mutations in the pore forming subunit, KIA 6.2, and found the first mutations. And so I suppose there were two really important and exciting things in my life. One was when I first saw, all on my own, <laughs> that the channel was closed by glucose metabolism. Yes. Fantastic. Second, yes. And the second one was when Andrew called me and said, I think you should sit down, Fran, because I, we've got something exciting to tell you. And he told me that he and Anna Gloin had identified the first mutation and asked us if we would look to see if it was actually disease causing. And of course, when we, when we did that, that's what we found it was. And so we've spent a, quite a lot of time working on these mutations that cause neonatal diabetes. But what I think is interesting about these mutations is when you look at a mutation that causes a very severe disease, i.e. diabetes, at birth or within the first six months of life, it immediately raises the question of, well, what happens if the mutation is less severe? Could it be causing diabetes later in life? Hmm. And so that, of course, or could it be that 
something going wrong with the channel is actually important in type 2 diabetes. So, so we spent quite a bit of time looking at mouse models of neonatal diabetes and also of mutations which were um, this common polymorphism found in all of us, about 40% of us carry one allele, which uh, in the Kia 6.2 poor forming subunit of the channel. And that is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, but it's extremely small. And what we find in a mouse model, not yet published, um, is that it does cause impaired glucose tolerance. So it's probably contributing to the development of the disease. But of course, many other things must be important because it doesn't happen until later in life. Well, it does kind of go with this whole new paradigm of, um, you know, people progress and then they might recover, go back into remission, and then they have more progression, more presentation of another antibody, another antibody, and so forth. So maybe it's a contributed well, that's, story. I mean, I... I I am talking about type 2 diabetes, so we don't have antibodies involved, True. as far as I know. True. Um, but I think that what it told me when we worked on the, the fact that the channel, mutations in the channel cause diabetes, um, and those mutations prevent the channel from responding to ATP, so ATP doesn't close it. So the question immediately arises, well, what about the possibility that diabetes could also be caused by a failure to generate sufficient ATP? And that's what my studies have sort of moved into now. That's what we're trying to understand now. Could there be a defect in metabolism that's preventing KATP channel closure, which then leads to diabetes? Can I ask you, if in an individual beta cell, if the mitochondria functionality goes offline or diminishes, you still have a little bit of ATP produced, um, you know, outside of uh, glycolytic do, ATP, yes. right? That's outside of the mitochondria. Is that ever enough to keep that channel operative? Or is it, do you absolutely need a certain uh, threshold of mitochondrial function within the beta cell? You absolutely need mitochondrial function. That's been known for many years from the work of many people, including Klaus Volheim. And... They, um, they have shown that if you inhibit mitochondrial metabolism, then that inhibits insulin secretion. And they also made what are known as row zero cells, which have no mitochondria, but obviously have glyc glycolysis and don't die. And they also don't secrete insulin. So we've known for many years that mitochondrial metabolism is essential. And you can't just, you can't knock it down sort of a little bit at a time. It has to be full bore. all the Oh, time. That, I, that I don't know whether you can knock it down a little bit at the time because that's not really been done. Um, I suspect, I suspect you probably can reduce it by five or 10% and it will still be secreting insulin. What I don't know is how much you have to reduce it by in order to prevent it. But our current studies suggest that hyperglycemia, high blood glucose, um, which of course is characteristic of diabetes and developing diabetes, yeah. um, actually impairs mitochondrial metabolism and that it does it by downregulating genes that are involved in metabolism. Yeah. Um, or, and not just downregulating genes, but reducing the, reducing the amount of protein. So probably somehow or other affecting translation of mitochondrial proteins. Hmm. 
Fascinating. But, but what we're able to show um, in both um, cell models, you know, beta, insulin secreting beta cells, and also in mouse models of diabetes, um, that it is the high blood sugar that's the critical thing. And that that leads to impaired mitochondrial metabolism. And the consequence of that is that you don't secrete insulin. So let's just, this, this is a perfect segue for us to talk about this, uh, your really great paper that came out uh, June 6, 2019 in Nature, Communications, uh, Diabetes Causes Marked Inhibition of Mitochondrial Metabolism in Pancreatic based, uh, B-Cells. Can you tell us a little bit about this paper? Well, what we were interested in was to know whether high blood sugar alone is actually having an effect on the beta cell. Um, this has, I mean, we already knew that it did to some extent, but we didn't, I, I suppose we didn't um, know in greater detail how that happened. Um, and because we knew about mutations, which uh, basically what we did was we made a mouse model of diabetes, which was essentially a neonatal diabetes model. Yeah. And the, the nice thing about this model is that we can switch diabetes on and we can switch it off in the adult animal. So we're not looking at any long-term developmental changes. We're not looking at changes that are produced by um, genes involved in metabolism um, per se. We know what the cause of the diabetes is. It's a model of a human type of diabetes. Um, and importantly also, the animals have normal lipid levels. So this is, this is sort of the equivalent of having diabetes in somebody who isn't fat. So we can distinguish between whether it's the lipid or the high blood sugar, low insulin that's causing the disease. We can't, of course, distinguish between low insulin and high glucose. Yeah. Um, but still, it's, it's an interesting window. But, but, and these but are the basically, basically, it's the sort of diabetes that people used to have where they were slim diabetics, not... Yes not obese um, of which you know before we had the obesity crisis there were still lots and lots and lots of them um, and so we used this model so basically what we did was we turned diabetes on in the adult animal um, and then we looked to see what happened to the beta cell and what we found was that very rapidly within two weeks there was a dramatic loss of insulin content due to downregulation of insulin genes. Yeah. And the other thing that happened was there was also marked inhibition of mitochondrial metabolism. Mm. And both of these things together um, caused a significant reduction in insulin secretion. So what we found was that, um, where we looked at it like this, we used RNA-seq to analyze all the, all, all, the, all the messenger RNAs. We used proteomics to analyze all the proteins. We, um, we measured um, oxidative phosphorylation, you, by, basically by oxygen consumption mm -hmm. and oxygen uptake by the islets. Uh, we measured ATP levels. We measured NADH levels. We measured the mitochondrial membrane potential. And we did this not only in these, this animal model, but we also did it in beta cell lines and found similar results. And in the beta cell line, we were able to do metabolomics to see what 
what metabolites changed. And we've now done the same thing in islets. So I think we, I think I, I'm, I'm very confident that we have dramatic changes in gene expression in beta cells that's caused by high blood sugar. Yeah. And what those, what those changes in metabolism, what those changes are, are there is upregulation of glycolytic genes, which I don't understand. There is downregulation um, of mitochondrial genes and proteins, both those in the TCA cycle and those in the electron transport chain. Weird. And, and they will, they impair ATP production um, in response to glucose. So in response, so we see lower ATP levels and a failure of ATP to go up when we elevate glucose. And we see the same thing for oxygen consumption, the same thing for NADH. None of them increase with glucose like they do in control cells. So what we would love to know is how is glucose doing it? And that's what we're working on now. Yeah. Um, but the other thing we found, which was also very interesting, is of course you have to remember that our mice are not treated like human patients are. So we have a very severe uncompensated diabetes. Um, the mice tolerate this very well. They run around quite happily with 25 or 30 millimolar glucose. And what we also found was that we had massive accumulation of glycogen in the cells. And of course, you don't want a beta cell to accumulate glycogen. It's supposed to be a glucose sensor. Yeah. So having, having, a, having a glycogen store, which it can then utilize when extracellular blood glucose levels fall is not a good idea. And it was the increase in glycogen that led us to try to understand what was going on with metabolism. And clearly what's wow. happening is the uh, pyruvate entry into the TCA cycle in the mitochondria is, is reduced. Um, is that something so, to do with the pyruvate transporter? Um, it's actually because pyruvate dehydrogenase is downregulated. Mm -hmm. um, as a well, pyruvate dehydrogen is 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 downregulated at the enzymatic level because of a protein known as pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, which phosphorylates it, which results in its inhibition, hmm. and that goes up fivefold. So it's working the opposite way, if you see what I mean. It's going yeah. up, but yeah. it's impairing yeah. metabolism. And um, the other thing is that it's um, uh, the pyruvate carboxylase is the other route which pyruvate can be metabolized going into the mitochondria and the TCA cycle and that is also um, reduced. So both the pathways by which pyruvate is metabolized are reduced. Does anything happen to the pyruvate transporter in the inner mitochondrial membrane? Um, I should know this and we've looked but I can't honestly remember. I don't think it changes much but I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, it stays open. I mean, it, you already have the regulatory pathways. Um, um, it's, um, yes, I can't remember. I mean, we found huge numbers of proteins were changed, hundreds of them. So, and some of those were uh, transporters and um, many, but, but many of them were, were metabolic enzymes. Um, it's, yeah, it's so, so curious uh, that, that there's almost like there's a switch there's a really a, um, a responsive metabolic switch inside the, the yes, pancreas. Yes, exactly. Yes, they're sort of reprogrammed. Mm. So they're no longer doing mitochondrial metabolism. 
And the consequences, if this was, for example, uh, and many other types of cell, what would happen is um, the glucose would be metabolized to lactate. But of course, that doesn't happen in pancreatic beta cells because they have very low levels of lactate dehydrogenase and they have no lactate transporter. So, so it can't be metabolized with lactate, uh, to, to lactate. So what happens is, where does the carbon go, you know, or in all that glucose? It's going into glycogen. That's why we have glycogen. Well, because some, sometimes cells can, uh, you know, have this Warburg effect, right? Cancer cells, they can change their whole metabolic, they can have a metabolic yes, change. Yes, that's, exact, that's exactly right. And so they, they, they go to metabolize glucose, but they metabolize it to lactate. Yeah, but, yeah. And this isn't happening. Um, it can't happen in the beta cell, no. Huh. Very interesting. Uh, they, they simply, and, and, and you know, it's a very important that they don't have the ability to transport lactate across their membrane or to metabolize lactate because otherwise when you're running around and your blood lactate levels go up, that would be <laughs> taken up by the beta cell, <laughs> yeah. stimulate insulin secretion and lower your blood sugar, which is You'd not be what you want. On the ground. <laughs> yes, yes ground exactly. every time you try to. <laughs> I'm just curious though, because there is sort of this, um, you know, in the literature, there's this uh, protection against uh, pancreatic cancer uh, in those that have sort of diabetes. Is that, is that right? Type 2 as well? I'm afraid I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I just, you just wonder if there's some kind of metabolic uh, interference there. Um, but it is, this is so curious. I mean, what's I, I think what I think is important about this inhibition of mitochondrial metabolism is I think it accounts for the progressive nature of type 2 diabetes. Because I think what happens is, and this is, you know, others have proposed this, but, but without the suggestion of how it's happening. But um, I think what happens is the blood sugar level goes up a little bit. That causes all the changes. In, begins to start changes in gene expression and lowers mitochondrial metabolism a little bit and thereby reduces the ATP production and insulin secretion. So then your blood sugar level goes up a little bit more because you, you don't have as much insulin. And, and it goes around like this. And for, you know, for a long time you can cope, but then at some point you, you can't any longer. And you go from impaired glucose tolerance to diabetes. And I think it's quite interesting that, you know, by the time people are diagnosed with diabetes, they've lost 50% of their beta cell function. And this is with type two that are, and this is for type two who are also, um, you know, overweight or, or just for type two. Oh, I think it will also happen with those people who are overweight because they also have high blood sugar. It's just that the insulin resistance means that, um, it exacerbates the whole problem. Um, it may possibly also happen in type 1 diabetes because when your blood sugar level goes up, what's going to happen to the beta cells that remain and that I suspect they're not going to work as well and that will exacerbate the situation too. So obviously the really important thing to do is to control your blood sugar well, level well. Is there anything like a honeymoon period um, in type 2 if you give people the, the right medications? I mean, with type 1, right? You... You, yeah, they present with the DKA, they go to the hospital, they, you know, resolve the DKA with the use of insulin, and then people can oftentimes have a honeymoon period. What about type two? Do they have anything like that? I think the problem is, 
um, honeymoon periods aren't, I mean, I'm not a clinician, so the truth is I don't know. Um, but if you think about it, um, they have a sort of honeymoon period, which is when they have impaired glucose tolerance and we don't even know they've got diabetes because they have no symptoms. Yeah. And that's a sort of danger period, really, I suppose, because their blood sugar is rising and damaging their beta cells. But I do know that if you take patients, newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes patients, take them into hospital and give them intensive insulin therapy for a few weeks, then they don't need treatment anymore. They, they, will, they will manage for a while. But then, of course, it creeps up gradually again. So I think... Um, and of course, we also know that the beta cells, contrary to what people used to believe, beta cells don't die in diabetes or, or, they, don't, or they don't die enough to be causing the diabetes. Yeah. And you can see that because if you take people who have type 2 diabetes and you put them on a very, because of obesity, and you put them on a very low calorie diet, then they will... Um, and then, then they can they can be asymptomatic for some time, and also we know that if you have bariatric surgery, the same thing happens. You can you can solve their diabetes for a while. So the metabolic and, profile. And, and I think the other I think the really really crucial thing that shows it so beautifully is in patients who have neonatal diabetes, um, essentially who are similar to our our mice. Um, those patients. When you put them on sulfonylureas, they can they then start secreting their own insulin because their beta cells have been essentially switched off. Yeah. And yet they might have had many, many years of diabetes, but their beta cells have not died. But what is fascinating is the longer uh, the, the older they are, the longer they've had diabetes, the more difficult it is to transfer to sulfonylurea therapy. It takes a longer time or a higher amount. Yeah, that's exactly what we see in the in the mice. And I think it is because um, the changes take longer to reverse. Somehow the metabolic profile has been switched. And well, we, we know we know from our experiments, um, which were not in this particular paper, but in a previous one we published, that we can reverse the diabetes in our animals. And we can also reverse the metabolic problem. Um, if if they had only been diabetic for four weeks. So we see that their beta cells are stuffed full of glycogen, telling us that, my, that they have had a metabolic switch, um, but we can, we can switch it back again. The, the, the glycogen disappears um, and their metabolism reverts. Um, their, their metabolism begins to get better. Um, because of the way we've made the mouse, I can't tell you what happens to insulin secretion because our mice are specifically designed not to secrete insulin. But that's not because they have a metabolic problem. It's because their iron channels don't respond to ATP. Yeah. This is really some fascinating work. And I think there are a lot of um, sort of insights from it that might, you know, um, that might trigger some new ideas in the, sort of the type one diabetes scientific community. I really encourage people to take a look at this really interesting paper. Um, and um, and I, I guess I would say thank you so much for sort of walking us through uh, your work, your the history of, of your work in uh, diabetes in type two. It's been amazing. The whole um, discovery of the potassium ATP channel, was really fascinating and um, 
just incredible achievement for you personally. And uh, so we really appreciate speaking with you. I do want to ask you, do you have any words sort of for young scientists, um, you know, particularly in this pandemic uh, time frame, uh, you know, do you have anything to offer? I suppose I have the lessons that I've learned along the way. And the first and most important one is that actually perseverance matters. And um, if you, you know, it may, the trouble about science is it, it isn't easy. Things are always going wrong. The experiments aren't working. Your papers are being rejected. Your grants are being turned down. It happens to me all the time. And the only thing to do is to just walk forward because actually if you just keep on going, eventually you get there. And that's, that's what I found. Um, so, so never give up. It's what Winston Churchill said. Never, ever give up. He was and, a tremendous icon. And we just should carry on doing it. You know, we, because, because if you have the enthusiasm, if you have the interest, um, just, just keep going. You'll get there in the end. So that's one thing I would say to people. Um, the other thing is apply for everything in sight because, um, you know, if you don't get the first one, you might get the third or fourth one. Um, that's always been my experience too. Um, and finally, I think find a friend. It's very important to have good collaborators. And I have been, it's just been wonderful. It's been so much fun. And the science has progressed so much more rapidly because I've had several wonderful collaborators. I had Steve Ashcroft early on, who's no relation, but a biochemist. That was wonderful. And then Patrick Rosman, with whom we've worked for 35 years or so, which has been a constant delight. And Andrew Hattersley with all the neonatal diabetes work. And so I think what you need is you need somebody to celebrate your triumphs and a shoulder to cry on when things aren't working well. <laughs> and so friends are really important. That, that was just a huge amount of wisdom. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I think it's uh, everything you said was absolutely spot on. And um, thank you so much for sharing it with us. We particularly appreciate the the shout out to collaboration, which is a mission, part of our mission at the Sugar Science. And we're really um, hoping to help scientists to become more collaborative, um, particularly in this sort of dis- disjointed um, pandemic uh, phase that we're in. And uh, of course, there's brighter days ahead as, as, as we come out of it. And um, I just appreciate you so much, your wisdom, everything, your time. Thank you again. Yeah, with regard to the pandemic, the end is in sight. The vaccines are there. Um, There is an end to this thing. And my team are working carefully. Good. Um, Well, I'm so glad you are. And thank you for all you're doing in the field of diabetes. 